because there was not a system or even an example for me to follow, the only thing I was following was my heart. And my heart was telling mm. me that I needed to travel long term in a culturally immersive way. And I needed to do it in a way where nothing held me back from experiencing yeah. or jumping on whatever opportunities the road might present. So mm. I knew that that meant going all in and selling everything I owned. Yet <laughs> my heart told me that if I, I had this lifelong dream of traveling the world in this super culturally mm. immersive way. And I was like, I don't think I can put another 30 years in doing this, waiting for to do this dream of mine, because what happens if mm. I hit retirement and then I can't or won't do yeah. these things that I really want to do? Like the, living with that kind of regret at the end of the day was just absolutely unacceptable for me. So hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Nomad Cloud. Our official partner is Global Rescue. Listen, traditional insurance won't rescue you, and a medical evacuation can cost up to $300,000. The cost to Global Rescue members? Just the price of the membership, which starts as low as $139. You see, friends, Global Rescue memberships provide peace of mind with travel services designed for unexpected medical and security emergencies, whether you're a digital nomad, expat, or family. Listen, do you have a plan in case of emergencies? If not, we recommend that you... Tune in to Global Rescue. And folks, I'm here with my son. If you're watching this on video or on audio, and the reason that I'm so excited about this partnership with Global Rescue is we are in safe hands. No matter where we are in the world, you know, if civil unrest breaks out, if some sort of, goodness me, if I broke an ankle or something crazy and I needed to be airlifted to uh, medical uh, services to get surgery or whatever it may be, Global Rescue will literally send rangers. They will literally send the national police. They'll literally send whoever is there that's going to secure you and your family immediately. They don't make any extra questions. They don't ask you to fill paperwork. They don't do any nonsense. You don't pay for the services of being um, taken from um, this emergency situation to safety. They just do it. And that was one of the biggest reasons that I decided to partner with them for my uh, podcast and, and a lot of the things I'll be working on moving forward, even in a future event that we're working on right now. Um, and, you know, I just want to let you all know that this is the most important thing, person, project. It is my son. And I know anyone who is in either in a serious relationship with their partner or they have a kid, you want to protect yourself because that's all that matters. So. If you are already on another insurance um, you know, company, you can still gl get Global Rescue, and it's very affordable to protect yourself when you go on these slightly higher-risk trips. If you're going to be mountain climbing, if you're going to be in places in Southeast Asia where health-wise it's a little bit more risky, I would sign up for a Global Rescue membership every single time. I will not take the risk. So with that being said, I'm excited to announce Global Rescue as our official podcast partner moving forward. And let's get into uh, this week's podcast. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Nomad Cloud. My guest today is Nora Dunn. She's one of our OGs. She's lived in and traveled to over 75 countries while working remotely. She combines her expertise as a former certified financial planner with her lifestyle travel experience, teaching people how to travel long term in a financially sustainable way. She's been featured in everywhere. Forbes, Condé Nast, Business Insider. This lady's got more features than me, family. I don't know how she how she doing this, but Lonely Planet, 
Oprah, Oprah, Oprah never called me. But, you know, I'm going to finish this intro to say Nora is one of our beloved OGs in the space. Was it 20, 2004, 2007? When did you start this whole thing, Nora? It was 2006 when I decided to sell everything that I owned. And I did do that in the last half of that year. And in January of 07, I was off. Sheesh, 2006. This is like, we're talking OG, OG. We're talking like uh, travel blogs. <laughs> and we'll get into all that because you have so many lessons to share. And I, and I, as concise as these podcasts are, we always want to sort of focus on giving value. And it's like, there's so much here. I'm just trying to like guzzle it in and just, just take my time, but still get it right. So first thing I want to do is just set the scene as to what city you're in. You've been to 70 something countries, 75 plus countries. What city and, and country are you in? And let us know kind of the vibes there right now so we can set that stage for our listeners. Sweet. I am currently in Tallinn, Estonia. Estonia is a new country to me. Uh, and this is the third of a three-month trip that I've taken through Europe doing a variety of different activities. But this month is particularly special because I'm doing this with Hacker Paradise. And this is my first time experiencing a mm. uh, co-living, co-working program where basically you pay one fee and you show up and they've taken care of co-living <laughs> space, good internet, co-working. There's skill sharing and potlucks and workshops and you know different activities. And you're basically living and traveling and working alongside 20 other like-minded people with travel lifestyles and remote careers. So it's kind of like yeah. an all-in-one. It's like this, this social exploration. It's, a, you know, you hold each other accountable to getting work done. And then you're able to explore your destination together. So I'm able to experience yeah. talent in a totally different way from the way that I would probably do it if I were left to my own devices, which is a double-edged sword, but ultimately a very good thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what I garnered from you. You're kind of like the people, one of our people who just, you don't, you're so dynamic. And again, we'll get into stories like ex you're exciting, you're dynamic, you're, you've got so many things that have happened that you've experienced that you can share as value for us. But that's what I always see in your character and your ability. Everybody thinks like when you reached five years, 10, seven years as a digital nomad or someone who's working remotely, that it's over. Like I just had a kid. It's over for me now. No, no but no, to all seriousness, I just felt as if at some point people settle down and they stop because they think that you've done everything. Well, my friends, Nora proves that it ain't ever over. There's so much you can do, so many experiences on the way. But take us back to, as you said, when you left your job uh, and you kind of just, just, just put yourself out there. How were you doing what you were doing as a, as a digital nomad back then? You know, um, I know like maybe you were blogging, but I, I kind of want to hear what it was like back then because you're such a, just like an archetype of what was possible. I'm sure not, no one in your family or friends thought you were even saying so i want to picture that for for our <laughs> listeners too what did that look like what is a digital nomad 2007 fam we didn't even have that name <laughs> No, you're right. There was not a word for it. And it was not an idea, a concept like remote work wasn't a thing. A location independent was not a term. And uh, the full time travel lifestyle, although I certainly was not the only person in the world to be doing it at the time, I sure felt that way because mm. there was no infrastructure <laughs> for people like me. There were no tools or services yeah. or communities to connect us. We were all, you know, what few of us there were trying to carve out this lifestyle. We're all figuring it out on our own, which is exactly what I was doing. <laughs> So yeah. because there was not a system or even an example for me to follow, the only thing I was following was my heart. And my heart was mm. telling me that I needed to travel long term 
in a culturally immersive way. And I needed to do it in a way where nothing held me back from experiencing yeah. or jumping on whatever opportunities the road might present. So mm. I knew that that meant going all in and selling everything I owned. That included my financial planning practice, which a lot of people, of course, thought was counterintuitive. Heck, I <laughs> thought it was counterintuitive. I reached <laughs> this tipping point with my financial planning practice where technically all I had to do for the rest of my life was work less and less and make more and more money. And yet <laughs> my heart told me that if I, I had this lifelong dream of traveling the world in this super culturally mm. immersive way, and I was like... I don't think I can put another 30 years in doing this, waiting for to do this dream of mine, because what happens if mm. I hit retirement and then I can't or won't do yeah. these things that I really want to do? Like the, living with that kind of regret at the end of the day was just absolutely unacceptable for me. So I the, yeah. the bigger risk was not doing it, even though there was a big risk yeah. in doing it. Yeah. So I hit the road. I didn't know what I would do, where I would go how I would make money along the way, how long I would go for. Like there was, I was open to the possibility that this might just be like a six month thing that I had to get out of my system. And that was that. <laughs> so like, I'm as surprised as anyone else to, you know, the, to be able to say I've been doing this for 17 years now. Mm, um, but it was probably, it was probably about six months in that I went, Hey, wait a minute, hold on. With a laptop and an internet connection, I could use my lifelong pension for the written word and my talent, innate talent with writing to make a living as a freelance writer. And for me, that was like lightning struck me. Like I had that, that aha moment. Uh, and again, I felt like I was the only person ever to make this connection and think, think this uh, through because again, it was just wasn't something that was done. So my initial yeah. career ambitions were with, through freelance writing and that was what I did. I had a blog at the time, but blogs were just online journals. So that's mm, what mine was right. too. It wasn't yeah. until a few years later that blogs became something that could be monetized and something that could actually even be considered a business. So that was why I was uh, very lucky to be considered one of the original travel blogs, just because it, again, it was a hobby side project that I started because I just wanted to write about my travels. But I was lucky yeah. enough to be in the right place at the right time to be able to take advantage of being the first in the space or one of the first in the space, which garnered me a lot of publicity and backlinks and longevity and tenure in, in an industry now that is a couple of decades old. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I'm liking what I'm hearing. The professional hobo. Where'd you come up with that name, by the way? Because it's a little counterintuitive, like you said. Like you, you quit this financial plan, and they say save up money and, and be smart, and then you travel and just say fuck it, just let me just go. But now you're you're also. <laughs> but I look at your name, but your name is personifies that. I wonder if anybody's ever asked you that. But what is that? When did you come up with the name, and uh, what made you come up with the, the specific name, the professional hobo? It's just so funny to me. <laughs> so, and I'm so glad that you see the humor because that was the 100% the intent. And it, it came yeah. a few months into my travels. Uh, I'm a Rotarian. I've been a Rotarian forever and ever, long predating my travels. And uh, so one of the ways that I like to uh, meet locals while I'm traveling uh, and really kind of get a, an inside scoop for the places that I'm visiting is to visit local Rotary meetings. So mm. I was uh, traveling across Canada and I was in Alberta and I was visiting a local Rotary club. And and uh, in Western cultures, when you meet somebody new, one of the first questions they tend to ask you is, what do you do? Mm, and yeah, they would ask me this question. And I just <laughs> sold everything to travel. And I didn't know what I was doing. 
And I, yeah, I, yeah. I had to come up with a with a catchy answer to this. And I was like, well, I'm kind of homeless, but I want to make homeless look good. So I'm going to call myself <laughs> a professional hobo. And it go. always got a laugh. And then it just yeah. got on from there. Now, the irony is there's actually a whole other poetic meaning to it as well, because a hobo, uh, if you go back to the 1930s, was actually a term for somebody who, well, the migrant workers in the United States who would hop on, uh, illegally hop on freight trains to go from town to town looking for work. And they would find seasonal work. And then when that work dried off, they'd hop on the next train uh, to the next town. And although I never hopped on a train illegally, I have mm. ridden, I have like an unhealthy love of train travel. <laughs> I've ridden more <laughs> trains around the world than pretty much everybody i know combined so wow. there's that that extra poetry to the professional hobo as well that's beautiful and that's going to lead into some of the stories that i want to hear more i we're going to go through every story and you're going to tell us exactly <laughs> what happened where it happened and how it happened how you got out of these crazy situations so let's talk about these beautifully but also somewhat somewhat as you described terrifying situations you just subscribe you just subscribe you described having survived three natural disasters where was this? What was happening? We need to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the first of the three uh, was actually not one that I survived as in I was not in the middle of it, uh, but I saw it. I was in northern Thailand mm. and I looked out to the west and this really epic storm was passing through on the horizon. And my partner at the time uh, looked out there and looked at me and said, wow, someone over there is having a really bad day. And it wasn't until that we got in back into Chiang Mai that we understood just how true that statement was. That was Cyclone Nargis that blew through Myanmar and left 2 million mm. people without food, shelter, or drinkable water. Wow. And I had never been so close to something so horrendous. And I really felt mm. it. So mm. my partner and I, we were like, what can we do? We should, we're like 100 kilometers away. We should be able to do something about this. We were like, well, okay, we could rent a truck. We could fill it up with water and, you know, bottles of water and drive it to the border and an aid worker on the inside can pick it up. And then at least we'll have helped people who don't have drinkable water, you know, we'll have done something more than mm. nothing. And 24 hours later, with the help of Rotary, <laughs> here enter Rotary mm. again, um, we had a C-130 Herc military cargo aircraft at the Royal Thai Air Force at our beck and call. Oh, wow ready to deliver uh, whatever we needed. So um, it was basically, we accidentally started an international NGO to try to fill this plane, which turned into- That's crazy. Uh, it was absolutely crazy. It was a ride of a lifetime. Uh, in so many ways, not something I would care to repeat, but was, mm. you know, also by the same token, I mean, I'm just happy to have been able to do something more than nothing uh, with, the, with the influence yeah. that we had, so. And so the second natural disaster was nine months later uh, in Australia, where we were actually in the middle of the Victorian bushfires, which at that time uh, was the worst ever disaster the uh, Australia had ever seen. And we were literally mm. surrounded by fires. We couldn't even get out if we wanted to for a few days because all the roads in and out of the area were mm on fire uh we were okay uh we were evacuated from the house that we were living in for about three weeks and we were just at the mercy of whatever and whoever could give us a place to stay uh and mm. again it was a we became instrumental uh through again with the help of rotary we became instrumental in helping to uh set up the uh, warehouse that would in turn accept all the donations of goods that were coming in from around the country and to help redistribute those to fire survivors. So uh, just an epic wow. experience. Uh, it was really uh, heartening to see the solidarity among Australians throughout that event. And, and then also the support that they gave to us as foreigners in the area. So it was, it was 
<laughs> another adventure. Mm. And then the third, the third natural disaster was just a little one. It was just two cyclones on top of one another in, in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just it was just two cy <laughs> cyclones. Listen, True. lady, uh, I, I, I just, I, can I just say that I'm I was getting goosebumps and slightly Terry. Like I, I tell everybody I'm an emotional guy. I just wear my heart on my sleeve. Like I always cry at least once on every podcast. And you just unlock some of those tears right there because yeah. what you're doing is impactful. And like the fact that you see nomads these days, Roe is asking, like, how do we help locals? How do we help? And it's like, Nora, you've been doing it and you've been doing it on a large level, NGO style. And it beckons me to think, why the heck don't we have a Nora Dunn Netflix show? Listen, <laughs> anyone listen that has the connections, make it happen. And I'm thinking, like, these stories are ridiculous. Like, and I'm, I, I, I was remembering when I was in um, college and I went to uh, Honduras. My uh, risque story is that there was a coup while I was in Honduras doing some missionary work, like painting houses. And uh, the president uh, gets uh, uh, kicked out of office and they were kidnapping kids off the street. That's my risque story. You got, like, dozens. We need to get a Netflix. If this podcast didn't achieve anything, we need to get Nora done her Netflix because this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I want to hear some more stories because it's going to prove to people what I'm saying. Three tropical diseases that you subscribed. You were robbed twice. You had a near-fatal accident. Which thing do you want to talk about? Because we these stories are, are embedded. We could talk for two hours. But which story out of surviving tropical diseases, getting robbed, near fatal accident do you think are significant or interesting that people may want, may want to hear because i'm just laughing too yeah crazy <laughs> crazy lifestyle Nora. what are you doing Nora? but tell us how, how, how these things end, end up happening well and truly <laughs> these are all the kind of the sensationalistic experiences you know i throw this of kind course. of stuff into my into my bio because it's it's you know it catches yeah, attention yeah. uh and yeah, i yeah. always like to uh you know i always like to point out as well that of course it isn't all bad uh these are the you know these are we're gonna get also, to we're gonna get to the good stuff we're gonna, we're gonna get to the good and you know what to be perfectly honest i think that travel's misadventures make for the best stories with a dose mm -hmm. of hindsight and a sense of humor and, and, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, these stories are fun to tell because I, I can look back on them and go, wow, that was a thing that happened. So like uh, one of the robberies, just, just to randomly pick and choose one of these, one of the robberies was um, something one, that one I, of, I thought it was only no, one. Okay. There was no, there two, two robbers. I was robbed twice. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, okay, and just, this one was intense. Me. I'll just give you the one I'm a laying on you. And it was, it was intense. Please. I call it the saga yeah. of my $10,000 passport. Because oh, snaps. I was living in uh, Grenada in the Caribbean at the time, and my partner at the time and I were in Europe, and we had a house guest or someone who was basically taking care of our place when mm. uh, we were away. And I didn't personally yeah. know this person, but he was a friend of a friend of my partner at the time, so it, it seemed like it was all good. And we got back from Europe, and he was still there, which he, of course was fine, but the reason he was in Grenada is he was trying to buy a boat. So, hmm. uh, and he was trying to, he was waiting for the money to transfer in so we could buy this boat. So once we got back, he's <laughs> like, is it okay if I stay with you a little bit longer? The money hasn't come through yet. We're like, yeah, sure. Great. And we got along <laughs> with him like a house on fire. He was amazing. I mean, he had, he was yeah. one of these people, you know, these people that have the ability to connect to everybody on some level. Like it doesn't matter yeah, how yeah, different they, the personalities no in the room are. Everybody <laughs> yep. loves him. You know, like everybody's yep. like, oh my yep. God, he sees me. So this was that guy. <laughs> he had that ability. Wow. And so so we were yeah. happy to have him and stay with us for another couple of weeks. Anyway, things went completely. I'll spare you the rest of the minutiae of this strange story. Uh, suffice to say yeah. that when he did leave, 
he managed to leave with my passport and a few thousand dollars in cash that I had strategically hidden throughout the place. I just sold my car. <laughs> Wow. And I had four cash and I had the cash hidden all over the place. Uh, it, and he found all the hiding places. Found them, found them all. Found them yeah. all and took that and my passport. And the reality is he didn't try to, I, I, I suspect he wasn't actually after the passport. He was after the, the wad of cash that yeah, was yeah. with the passport. And he only mm -hmm. had like a few seconds to ransack the place it. before he left. Yeah. So and off he goes with my passport. Crazy. Three days before I'm supposed to go to Panama for a house sitting gig. And it's a weekend mm. and there's yeah. no consulate on this island. So Damn. it was a total tough. comedy That's of tough. errors. I had to get this emergency yeah. document to fly back to Canada so then I could rush a passport into 24 hours and get down to Panama for my wow. house sitting gig. All of that wow. between the money that was stolen and the uh, lost cost of the flights from Grenada to Panama and the emergency mm. flights from that I had to rebook to do the whole thing, plus the new passport. Yeah. It was a ten thousand dollar ordeal, which is why I call that yeah. the ten thousand dollar passport. The ten k passport. That's 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 episode season one, episode two of the uh, Nora, <laughs> Do, Nora Dunn's uh, life life lifetime story. So, how do you deal with stuff like that? That's rough. That's that that sucks. A lot of people wouldn't be able to handle that and even move on. They'd be sobbing for like two months. So how did you get over it if you did? And what did you how what kind of mentality did you have in these situations and other situations when you're traveling or living, working remotely? You know, it's a really great question because someone I, I recently told that story. Someone I have an article on my website describing the this whole ordeal in a little more detail. And someone responded uh, to me and said, Well, this is the sort of stuff that shakes your faith in humanity. You know, like how can you ever hmm. trust anyone after yeah. this? I mean, this yeah, is someone who rough. came a house sitter. You know, like, how could you ever trust anyone again? And I, I said, fair point, valid question. Um, and I think for me, it did not shake my trust in humanity, although it might have made me a little more careful to open mm -hmm. up my home to someone I don't know, even though mm -hmm. I thought I did because it was a referral. I, I evidently did not. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also think, too, it's also, uh, you know, there's a saying, trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little, you know, like, uh, yes, I'm trusting in faith in humanity, but would I, you know, hide cash around the house again when I have a house guest? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably right? not. So I learned <laughs> from it. Uh, I also think it ultimately it was a great story. Uh, and, you know, again, like I said earlier, I mean, listen, it's the misadventures that make for the best uh, stories. Yeah. And yeah. I do. I, you know what? Shit happens. And it happens. Shit and happens. You know it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's right? fine. It's only 10k. Like, come on. Like, it's fine. It's money. Life is. You're alive. You didn't get harmed. And I think people. You know, some of our friends and people have worse situations when money or or physical harm. And and I'm just so glad that you're okay and you're here today. And uh, that's what people I realize. Like money and these physical things don't matter. And that's another thing I've been pushing in the community now. Is like uh, sovereignty, quality of life. It's like you have to look at that over just. Uh, oh, money in your bank account. That helps. But if that stuff like this happens, people got to realize, like, move on. Go make more money. Actually, that's, the, that's another thing I'm pushing. Make more money. Don't try to save. Make more. But I want to move forward now and transition to the good stuff. Let's, let's, do some, let's do some interesting stories that I also read about you. A kangaroo fell in love with Nora Dunn and followed her around for six months. 
what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> not at 100% literal, not a word of a lie. She's so. not lying, everybody. A kangaroo <laughs> fancied her and said, you know what? I need me some Nora. Let me just follow her. No. Yeah. So but break it down. Break, break it down. Let us know what, what really happened because that's the cartoon version. I'm, I'm pushing your shows. This is the cartoon. Nora this is, Dunn, this is, this is definitely the cartoon version. <laughs> oh. Anyway, tell us tell us about that so people can actually put one and one together. So this was when when I arrived to Australia initially. This was before the fires, and I was volunteering in trade for free accommodation, which is something that I did a lot in my first ten years on the road. And there's five different ways to get free accommodation around the world. I literally wrote the book on it, and this was one of the first ways that I was exploring, which is work exchange where you, you know, volunteer your, you know, whatever it is, so, you know, your brains or your bronze in order to uh, have a free place to stay. And this place was a 300 hectare, gorgeous rural property uh, in uh, the state of Victoria, which is about an hour and a half north northeast of Melbourne. And we were doing, my partner at the time and I were doing all kinds of stuff in exchange for free accommodation. We were uh, helping to take care of a cottage that the, the owners rented out. We were chopping firewood. We were doing various property maintenance tasks. Uh, and this property also was an animal sanctuary. And so uh, one of the residents of this place was Bracken the kangaroo, who was a rescued kangaroo. <laughs> He was, uh, he had been, I guess he had been taken in by humans uh, when mm. his mother, uh, when he was just a Joey and his mother was hit by a car and these humans mm. came along and took him as a baby and went, oh, a cute kangaroo. And they tried to raise him until as most kangaroos eventually get, he became an adolescent and he was too large to be kept in a home. <laughs> at which point the sanctuary took him on and rehabilitated him to the wild. So Bracken mm. had been rehabilitated to the wild, but he occasionally liked to come down from the hills to say hello. Mama. And on this one particular day that he came down to say hello, shortly after I arrived, he laid eyes on me. And that was that. From Aww. that moment forward, he literally lived on my doorstep. He followed Aww. me around everywhere I went. It was precious and charming and delightful. I mean, I, literally, I have video literally of me walking and like Whoa. everywhere I walk, I can walk in he a circle and me. he literally follows me in that circle. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Bracken. Wait, Bracken, <laughs> is, Bracken is Bracken still alive or like what's going on in his life these days? Just curious. I don't know, uh, but I would Whoa. suspect that he is. So uh, he was, he was a... He was an ordinary yeah. adolescent at the time, so he, uh, yeah. he should be an adult now. Hopefully we, we, he's got a little family. We need a Kangaroo. reunion. We need to do it. That's that's episode three. Braxton comes home, okay? Nora comes home. <laughs> Who's going home? I don't know if it's you or Braxton, but uh, that's a beautiful story. Again, Nora, like these are ridiculous stories that I don't know <laughs> what twinkle in the stars created you, but we need to get you out there to actually be these stories to get out in the world. I want to keep saying it because maybe it's, it's, it's going to spark something in somebody listening. But I want to move on to another fun thing about you spending time in another part of the world, Peru. You spent two years in Peru with a shaman. Did you do ayahuasca? What happened there? Tell us yeah. everything. <laughs> That's why okay, she's so it, woke. I knew it. I knew it. No. Right? <laughs> but you're not, you're, you're not inaccurate there, actually. My teacher used to call uh, plant medicine the Ferrari of transformation, and that certainly what it was mm. for me. So when I arrived to Peru, I had no intentions of apprenticing with a shaman. This was not on my list of things to do. However, ayahuasca was on my radar 
I knew that it was something I'd known for years, that it was uh, a, a tool for really substantial healing. And I was open to the possibility of finding finding a way to have some ceremonies. Uh, what I hadn't bargained for was that not only would I uh, discover ayahuasca, but I would also discover San Pedro and I would have many mm. life-changing experiences uh, with these medicines. And, What's San Pedro, and then, by the way? San Pedro is like the little brother to mescaline. So it's a cactus. Okay. And it is something oh. that has been ceremonially, ceremonially used in Peru for over 3,000 years. Mm. It's got history. All right. Keep it's going. It's got history. Mm -hmm. Big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As does ayahuasca for that matter as well. So yes, sure. I, uh, as I w went through my own healing journey, I also ended up developing a uh, friendship with the uh, shaman who was leading most of the ceremonies that I was, um, you know, having these really transformational experiences with. So I really connected with the way that he worked with the medicine and the way he worked with people. Uh, and so one thing led to another, to another, to another, and I ended up becoming his apprentice and I lived there for two years. I was apprenticing with him. We were together. We were holding ayahuasca and San Pedro ceremonies. Uh, and I was, wow. it was a thing. Uh, and I actually, for a while thought it was like the new me. Like I was like, this is it. Shaman yeah. Nora, this is my yeah, new life. Yeah. I was getting Peruvian residency. The shaman yeah. that I was working with was, uh, he had put me in his will. He was going to will his entire retreat center to wow. me. And that's it. Like we'd made like a really significant commitment to one another to working together from that moment onwards. Um, I'll spare you the minutia. I tried to write a book about it and the book just tore me to bits emotionally, but it didn't work out in the uh -huh. end. I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, and I moved on from Peru and I went to Ecuador where I then worked with a family of shamans who worked with the same medicines, oh, wow. but in a very different way. And I worked with them mm. as their assistant for another six months, six to nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. And that was also fantastic and crazy and life-changing and amazing. And uh, somewhere around the end of all of that, though, I just kind of got the calling to take a break. And mm. I realized that, that that was not my path and uh, that the experience certainly served its purpose for me in my life and uh, where I was and, and who I would eventually become. Uh, and so that was yeah. in 2017, mid 2017. I, uh, I didn't know how long I would be, you know, leaving for, but I, I left uh, South America. I left Ecuador and I haven't worked with the medicine since. Uh, I'm not, mm. uh, I'm, I'm open to the possibility of it happening again or being called back to it, but I'm also open to the possibility to that just having been a chapter of my life, which served a very significant mm. purpose for me. That's beautiful. Do y'all see the, the breath and the fresh air from this woman? I don't know who this is. This is Nora. If you don't know who this is, this is Nora Dunn. Take your notes, people, because we're moving on to the next section of the interview, which is we're going to talk about money now. <laughs> if you want to talk spirituality, if you want to talk all these different things, I want to talk about money. And my thing is, is I want to be practical. So people talk about remote work. You have to have a gig online. But my curiosity is, how do you sustain? Did you just make a boatload of money in your financial practice and then you just lived off of that, invested? How the heck do you go from that 17 years and it seems like you've been creating content, you've been doing things you're passionate about. People associate passion, things they're passionate about with not making money. I'm an artist. I'm a creator. I'm a blogger. I tell stories. I'm a writer. Writers are starting to finally get compensated like crazy, right? Copywriting. We have some people on the podcast in the past. How does Nora Dunn make money? How does she sustain it? How does she invest? I'm very curious about that. 
So first, the investment bit. Uh, because I was 30 years old and I had run a successful financial planning practice uh, when I sold everything to travel, I also had been an ever the financial planner. Of course, I had been saving and investing uh, for my own future throughout my 20s. So I had enough of a nest egg saved up that I knew that if I just invested that and didn't touch it, that that could be my retirement, which gave me the freedom in my 30s and 40s to um, be able to uh, just make ends meet. And I set myself, when I sold my financial planning practice, it kicked out an income, a small income, but a, enough of an income mm -hmm. for the first two years that I set myself the challenge of, of seeing if I could live and travel full time on that money without touching my savings. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a fun personal mm -hmm. challenge that I gave myself to see if that was possible. It was mm -hmm. about $2,000 a month. And not only did I find it was possible mm -hmm. to travel full time, on $2,000 a month using a lot of creative techniques like getting my accommodation for free by volunteering and you know various you frequent flyer miles to travel in style uh, without having to pay you know the, the the fees I actually traveled I flew long haul for less than economy prices but I was in business class yeah so I found a wow. lot of creative ways to save money but not sacrifice on the experience so that taught me how to travel full time without spending a boatload of money in the meantime, I was developing this freelance writing career that I alluded to earlier. And I was mm -hmm. able to parlay my financial expertise from being a financial planner with my travel experience to write for a couple of different types of publications. So I found that financial publications would hire me to write about travel and travel publications <laughs> would hire me to write about finance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice. So somewhere in the middle, I found myself in this unique cross-section of being the finance of travel girl. And then as travel blogging mm. became more recognized and an industry and something that I could start to monetize with my own blog, The Professional Hobo, I uh, further dove into that niche. So, for example, when I was giving myself this challenge of traveling full time on $2,000 uh, a month or less, when I finished my first year of travel and realized that I had not only achieved but i had surpassed that goal and i spent seventeen thousand dollars in that first year i was like whoa i lived nice. in hawaii and in the rocky mountains of canada and all these places that are not cheap places i was not doing yeah. the the currency arbitrage thing that most digital nomads do and yet i was having yeah. these epic experiences and spending a fraction of the money that people thought so i was like i gotta show people this is possible so yeah. for my first 10 years of full-time travel on my website, I published, and you can still find if you know where to look, my annual expenses all in business, personal travel, everything, and my wow. annual income to prove that full-time travel can be financially sustainable. Wow. So that got me a fair bit of attention, as you can imagine. So eventually, as the years went by, I did start making money with my travel blog. So I, I had the combination of freelance writing and my blog. And eventually I got rid of the free, I, I started phasing out the freelance writing and uh, the blog was doing really well. Um, although admittedly, so here's the challenge. I did really well because I was one of the first in the space, but mm, everything else yeah. I did wrong. So how so? what do you mean you did wrong? Well, so because this was a, a hobby and B a 100% bootstrapped thing that I didn't really see as a business. When eventually yeah. the time came for me to actually get serious about it as a business, like when SEO became a thing yeah. and analytics mm. and split testing and all of these other tools that as a blogger, I was expected to adapt to and start incorporating into my business. I didn't want to do it. 
I hung on to this perverse You're like, idea. Nope. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm a creative. I just want to tell a story. And if I tell a good enough story, everyone's going to beat a path to yeah. my door, yeah, which yeah. is not true. And yeah. so I really, you know, like had I actually gotten serious so somewhere around 2013 or so that like I should have really just started to get serious about it. Um, and instead, I just put it on the back burner and went to play shaman in Peru for a couple of years. So, wow. uh, which is good. I mean, listen, that was an experience too, right? <laughs> but uh, there was a yeah. lot of mistakes that I made. And um, so there were, you know, really wasn't until fairly recently in the last few years that I got, I mean, it was around 2017 that I got serious about things like SEO with my, with my blog, but I still really, I say serious. I was only moderately serious about it. Uh, I hired someone to clean it up a little bit. That was what I did. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Interesting. So, I see your website is still active. It's still there I mean, still and I'm still doing, doing it. it and I'm, and I'm doing it better. I'm definitely doing it yeah. better. Uh, and well, uh, I also decided I wanted to start diversifying and I went into YouTube as well. Hmm. And again, that's another example. I've had my YouTube channel since the beginning of YouTube, but please don't go looking for the early stuff. It's awful. <laughs> and again, I did it. I mean, Illuminate, you and I met because of this YouTube series yeah. that I started in the pandemic called the remote work and travel show where I interviewed yep. ordinary people who had mm -hmm. extraordinary travel lifestyles and remote careers. And I thought that was going to be the ticket to YouTube fame and fortune. And strangely, it wasn't. Again, because I wasn't applying the science that the algorithm demands. Yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta play to the algorithm, guys. I almost right? made you an, an offer to buy your website on the first live podcast asking to buy your website because I, I'm telling you, I'm on your, I looked up your domain. This, Hey, this is the practical learning side of the podcast. Everybody. If you go to moz.com and you type in somebody's website, you can check something called domain authority. And Nora has a pretty good domain authority. 54. That thing can run. And so <laughs> I wonder if, you can share which ways you're monetizing right now. And maybe I can give some thoughts as well. Cause I've done some SEO type of online monetization stuff. So how are you monetizing your, your blog right now? So the main forms of monetization are display ads, affiliate sales, and a little bit of sponsorship. The same goes for my okay. YouTube channel. Uh, although there's a little more of sponsorships uh, happening with YouTube, the, the ticket for me. So the, the, the lucky strike that I had with my website is that somewhere around, I don't know, 2009, I think I wrote maybe 2008. I wrote an article about wheeled backpacks on my website. Oh, and from that moment forward, Google decided that I'm an expert on travel luggage and travel clothing. And certain yes. types of gear. So I can write yes. all the most wonderful travel narratives that I absolutely love. And frankly, I wish I would be known for. But the reality is the posts that get traffic and quite frankly, the posts that make money, which I'm not sad about, are these articles mm. about travel gear and luggage. And every time I write an article that's on this topic, it ranks really well. Yeah. So that's it. that's it because that's how I make money through affiliate sales, through all of those gear and luggage posts, uh, and then also through display ads because I get about I don't know a million and change impressions a month for on my site. Damn. Yeah. You see, see, you see where I was going to, folks. See, <laughs> this is what I was trying to get out of Nora. Okay, you patiently <laughs> waited. This is why I mentioned it because it's called consistency. So her yeah. time has not gone to this wayside. She spent 
time on her craft. I know a lot of nomads, a lot of young nomads or people coming up right now, you'll say, ah, but it's not paying off right now or it sucks, it's hard. Look at Nora. And as I transition to kind of the end of this, I want Nora to also give you a gift that we spoke about. I want you to give them a gift because you're the million dollar lady or million impressions lady that's going to have a Netflix series. You might know some of your stuff. You might want to trust her. So now we're going to give you some free stuff from Nora. Okay, Nora, what's the free stuff? Free stuff from Nora. If you go to com slash free gift, what awaits you there is a checklist of 10 things to do before you travel long term. And this will help you cover all the bases and do the things that you need to prepare, the things that you probably haven't thought about, or if you've thought about, you haven't figured out in terms of how to make your uh, travel security and your travel life and your lifestyle easy, stress-free, and as well-managed as possible. Well, I'm going to download it right after because I, I think I need that. <laughs> uh, and I, that's that's real talk. Like I, that, that makes a match for what I need. Um, Nora, thank you. Before you go, I have a question. Someone is really afraid of traveling. Someone's afraid of life. Maybe they're going through trauma. They're going through challenges. We covered so much with you in this short time. What do you say to that person that's listening? Travel isn't easy it inherently is an experience of being outside of your comfort zone. And some people are ready for that and some people aren't. It's sometimes easy and it's sometimes difficult. I mean, there, there, there are brackens, the kangaroos, and then there are the conmans <laughs> who steal your passport. It is, uh, it's not all roses and lollipops, but it can be an amazing experience. And like I say, the adventures and misadventures alike are going to you know, be building blocks into who you are and how you see life. And I do think that travel can be the key to so many things to increase compassion and a greater awareness of yourself mm -hmm. and the people around you. Uh, it can be ultimately, if you really want to go meta, if enough people travel the world, it can be the ticket to world peace. But mm -hmm. I also don't think that everybody needs to travel. If this is not your calling, don't force it. Because mm. it is wherever yeah. you go, there you are. And if there's a part of you that wants mm -hmm. to travel because you think you're running away from something, I would encourage you to deal with wh whatever it is that you are feeling before you take that on the road, because it's going to be exponentially more challenging when you're outside of your comfort zone. Damn, she's good, y'all. She's good. <laughs> um, we'll see you on the Netflix series. Nora, thank you for being on Nomad Cloud. <laughs> if you want more, you know where to find her. Check the show notes. My goodness, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. Woo! Thank you for your time, Nora. Thanks, yeah, Luminae. Thank all right. All love. Peace. <laughs>